0: You remember Jesus gave a promise to his disciples after they had seen many of the miracles he had performed, many of the great works he had done, and no doubt when he said this, that this astonished them. He said, greater works shall you do than these. He who believes in me will do these greater works. And of course, when you look at that, and we've discussed this several Sunday mornings ago, you'd ask the question, what do you mean greater works? We're going to do more miraculous works than Jesus? We're going to do greater works than that? What can be greater than raising from the dead? And if that were the case, just the miraculous, we'd have to ask ourselves, how many people have I raised from the dead this last month? But of course, Jesus was speaking of that, but I think a greater work even than that. And that is we would be able to bear the gospel to different parts of the world... And more people would be touched through the lives of His church with the Holy Spirit living within them than all of the people that Jesus touched while He was on earth. And it would have a rippling effect. Greater works than these would you do. The underlying principle, of course, is simply that God has more intended for us than for us just to believe in Him. You see, it doesn't stop with us raising our hand and becoming Christians ourselves That's the beginning. But what God has intended for us is that He would work through us. And even as we heard and we received and we believe, is that we would now go out and He would work through us to touch other people for Jesus Christ. There was a man who went up to an evangelist one time, an evangelist named Dwight L. Moody, who preached in Chicago. He was a gutsy evangelist. Many people came to know the Lord through his ministry. And this man was so excited to see Dwight L. Moody after 14 years. He ran up to him and he said, Dr. Moody, I've come to know Christ 14 years ago at one of your crusades. Instead of getting all excited, Moody simply said, what have you been doing since then? You see, that's the real issue, isn't it? Now here we have a classic case of the church in Jerusalem being persecuted, being sent out, and we've already seen a couple of the people involved. Stephen Philip, and a list of seven people who served tables, two of them were used mightily to reach other people with the gospel. They took what they had and weren't satisfied with just saying, I am now a believer. They were interested in making sure that other people would become believers through their testimony. They were taking the baton of evangelism and obeying Christ when he said, go out into all the world, and preach the gospel to every living creature. Well, these folks took it quite seriously. However, it took a little bit of nudging from God to remind them of that commission. The nudging came in the form of persecution. You see, there was a great movement going on at Jerusalem, and it was I'm sure it would be a very contenting kind of a thing to just stay there. This is great. 3,000 people came to know the Lord. 5,000 people came to know the Lord. Let's just stay right here, but Jesus said you'll go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, and they hadn't done that yet. Well, we read about in this chapter that after some persecution came and smacked them a little bit, they decided, well, they had to. They couldn't stay in Jerusalem. They had to go to Samaria. And then after persecution takes place later in Samaria, they have to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And through that persecution, the gospel gets further and further and further out. You know, 2,000 years ago, the gospel wasn't in New Mexico. How did it get here? It got here by starting in Jerusalem with a few disciples. And those disciples were growing and learning about Christ. They were persecuted and they happened to go to Samaria. They were persecuted. They happened to go to Antioch. After Antioch, they went to Rome. The gospel went then from the center of the empire throughout Europe. And then people decided to go from the old world to the new world and establish America. And missionaries came and preached the gospel. We are the uttermost parts of the earth. You know, we tend to reverse that. I need to go out to the uttermost parts of the earth. Have you ever thought that you are in the uttermost parts of the earth? Especially if you think that it began in Jerusalem. This is as far out as you can get. And yet the same commission is for every believer no matter where he's at. Every believer has a Jerusalem, which is your own backyard, wherever you live. That's Jerusalem for you. Samaria would probably be lands that extend beyond your immediate city that are close by. Or perhaps Samaria would be reaching those people who are unlovable. Since Samaria was one of the most unkosher, horrible places for a Jew to go. Nobody wanted to go to Samaria. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. So rather than seeing Samaria as just Santa Fe, Taos, Texas, of course, I don't know, Texas could fall into that category. Not quite so. It's taking the gospel not just to our comfortable setting, but reaching those people that in the past we would have an animosity against, a prejudice against. And then, of course, we also have an uttermost parts of the earth, unfamiliar territory to us. Well, we read about, and we read about a couple of weeks ago, the persecution that occurred when Stephen preached the gospel. And in verse 1 of chapter 8, Saul was consenting to his death, and at this time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Persecution to the church was like what wind is to seed. Wind scatters the seed, and the wind doesn't hurt. The wind actually serves to get the seed planted in other areas, and so does persecution. In fact, the word scattered literally means in Greek, they were scattered like seed in the wind. God wanted the seed to be planted in different places. Persecution, it seems, has a good effect even for you and me. Now, I've noticed something, that when I first started to preach the gospel, when I was a baby believer and I was being trained how to share my faith, the way I was trained is they they took a bunch of us in the hollowed-out Volkswagen bus and dumped us off a, a downtown place, a mall, and we walked the streets and said, Do you know Jesus? We got all sorts of interesting comments on our style of evangelism. And I remember being so scared at first And yet, every time someone came against us, either verbally or physically, it simply made us bolder. I remember one night I was with a friend and we were sharing the gospel. We had had good success. And my friend walked up to him and shared the gospel with him. And this guy took a knife out. Took my friend by the neck and stuck the knife in the small of his back. He said, one more word about Jesus and it's going in. Now I'm just standing there, kind of looking at this whole thing. I didn't want to make a move. He didn't want to make a move. But my friend started sharing that Jesus loved him. And that no matter what he did to my friend's body, he has eternity waiting for him. And he didn't care. Go ahead, stab me if you want to. But Jesus loves you. that guy got so flipped out, he put his knife in and he just walked away. He couldn't believe that someone would love him that much. And after that incident, it just made us bolder. We didn't want to run away. We thought, let's go for it we made it through one hurdle, let's try some more. And persecution has an emboldening effect on the person who's being persecuted, it seems. And also, there's the knowledge that I'm doing this in line with what God commanded me to do, and if I suffer, so what? At least I'm obeying the will of God. Now, I think of China when I think of persecution. Of course, you know the reports of China starting to open up and then close. Actually, if you would go back into the 1940s when the communist started their revolution and started taking over China. At the time they took it over, there were 643 missionaries in the whole country of China. And then the gospel started being restricted. They started closing the doors. you know that it's estimated that on a daily basis, on a daily basis, it's the largest country in the world, but on a daily basis, some 28,000 people come to know Jesus Christ in China. Now talk about revival. It seems that our country is going to be in need of evangelism by other countries because they're getting saved at a quicker rate than we are. And as one time we were a sending nation, I think we're going to be a receiving nation one of these days, like England. England used to be in the forefront of world evangelism. You know that today the the leaders inside England are saying England needs people to preach to them. We need to be evangelized, they said. Well, verse four says, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits came out of him with a loud voice. And came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now, as we mentioned, Samaria was one of those cities that was considered by the Jews to be off limits. It was an untouchable kind of a people group. There had been an animosity, a social and even racial prejudice against Samaria by the Jews for a long time. And it stemmed from what happened years before this event. Let me recall it to you. Around 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in and captured the ten northern tribes of Israel and took them away. They left a few of the Jews in the land, and after taking away a lot of their own people, they imported some of their own Assyrians and other people that they had taken captive from other countries. They repopulated the area of Samaria. Those people who were left intermarried With the people who were repopulated and they became half-breeds. They weren't pure Jews any longer. Now that was very different from the southern kingdom, Judah, who were very proud, very independent, and although they were taken captive, they refused to marry anyone else except Jews for the most part. And so when they came back to Judea, they were still on target serving the one true God. And they scoffed at the people in the north of Samaria because they hadn't stayed true to the Lord. They refused to let these Samaritans rebuild the temple in Judea. The Samaritans got all bummed out. They said, we're going to build our own temple. And so they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, had their own copy of the scriptures, their own priesthood. And there was this huge religious animosity between the two groups. So that if you lived in Jesus' day, and you were in the north, and you wanted to go down to Jerusalem, you wouldn't go straight down through Samaria, which is the easiest route you'd bypass it. You'd actually go way out of the way to get down to Jerusalem. And you remember that Jesus Christ, it said, needed to go to Samaria. The disciples couldn't understand this until they got there and found that there was a woman that was to have an appointment with Jesus to hear the gospel. And the woman was even astonished that Jesus, being Jewish, was there in Samaria. She said, what are you doing asking me for water. Don't you know that Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? Jesus didn't care about the racial prejudice. He started sharing the gospel with them. And so it seems that in the heart of God, there was a plan for the nation of Samaria long before this event in the book of Acts. It was not where most Jews wanted to go. It wasn't their favorite vacation spot to hang out for two weeks in Samaria, but persecution served to curb their prejudice. And we see here that they go. We notice right off the bat, who was the evangelist in this crusade? It was Philip. Now, do you remember Philip from chapter 7? He was one of the seven deacons. He was serving tables, serving the widows. He wasn't a famous evangelist. But it seemed that he grew in his ministry. And he went from Philip the deacon to Philip the evangelist. In fact, in chapter 21 of Acts, he's known as Philip the evangelist who lived in Caesarea. And Paul the Apostle went to visit him on his journeys. This also happened with Stephen, who was one of the seven, faithfully served God in the capacity of just helping around the church until God furthered his ministry. Now, there's a principle here I don't want you to miss. God has a principle that we are to be faithful in the small things before we can be Lord and ruler over the bigger things. And God always looks at faithfulness in a person. Not background and education, faithfulness. You notice that Philip, it's recorded, never went to seminary. There weren't any in those days. He didn't have any special training, except he served other people. And at the right time, because he humbled himself before the hand of God, God exalted him in due time. This is where many people, many Christians, fail the test. They don't want to be faithful in small things. They want the big things. They think, look, I'm too important to serve tables. God has a great ministry for me. Where's the TV cameras? Where's the radio microphones? That's where I want to start. Well, God's ways are not your ways, first of all. And God says, begin by humbling yourself as a servant. And in due time, I'll exalt you. Several years ago, I worked with a person on staff. He wasn't on staff very long, but he was working here on staff. Now, probably all your minds are thinking, let's see, I've been around here for who long? Who could that be? But it seemed like he thought God called him to the ministry. So I said, great. And I gave him several jobs to do that were very service-oriented. I said, I want you to straighten up all the... Chairs in the church. He didn't want to do it. He wanted to get other people to do it for him while he was just kind of hanging around. I tried to give him other things to do, but he didn't want to get involved in those things. He says, I can't see myself doing those kind of menial tasks. And I said, then I can't see yourself being here on staff. Because being in the ministry means you're a servant. And if you're not willing to serve by picking up people's trash after services and straightening out chairs, God didn't call you to the ministry. Philip and Stephen began being just servants. Now, they didn't become servants so that they could graduate to become evangelists. They didn't think, okay, here, I'll just sweat it out for a few months serving people and who knows, I'll probably be an evangelist soon. They didn't care about that. They didn't do it to manipulate God or manipulate the leadership of the church. They were just faithful and content doing what God called them to do. And when it was time, God raised them up because they were faithful and it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some people ask me about training for the ministry. I, I know of no better training than just doing it. Just serving, looking at needs that people have. Finding someone who's broken hearted, sharing the scriptures with them, spending extra time after service, counseling them, praying for them, following them up, discipling them on your own, taking them out to coffee pulling weeds around their house, serving in any capacity you can think of just to get your feet wet or to get their feet wet because you ought to be washing them. That's the best way to do it. And that's God's training program. He said, my ways aren't your ways. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. They're higher. We think in terms of preparation for doing something for God in terms of Bible college, seminary, specialty schools, and that's fine. That's good if God calls you to do that. But the calling must be there first. And I believe that you have to have proved yourself first. Because if you think I'm going to go to school and training so that I'll become equipped, you might end up wasting your time in those places and come out eight years later, find that God didn't call you to do that. I think you should have your ministry proved first. And then once you know what it is, go ahead and get training and go for it. And I look at the scripture and I see all of the people that had BSD degrees. Know what that is? Backside of the desert. That's where they were trained. God took them out back of the woodshed. Out in the Sinai desert. Out in the Negev desert. Elijah, Moses, John the Baptist, several of them. Paul the Apostle, two years in Arabia. And that's where they were trained and molded by God. Spending time with Him. Making mistakes as they tried to serve, but serving people nonetheless. They did it. God trained them and then God sent them. Also, I want you to note the relationship here in verse 6 between the message that was preached and the miraculous signs and wonders that were performed. It says, And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. They not only heard a message they saw miracles happen. Now, careful. The miracles never caused them to believe. In fact, there's never recorded in the Scripture one incident of a person believing in Jesus by seeing a miracle. And I know people who say, if I could see a miracle, I'd become a Christian. I doubt you would. It never happened in Jesus' ministry. In fact, in Jesus' ministry, it's recorded that... Many people, although he did signs and wonders, did not believe in him that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, who said that their hearts were hardened, they themselves closed their eyes, and so forth. And although he did these things, they did not believe in him. Those who did believe in Jesus by his miracles, Jesus did not always get too excited about. Acts chapter 2. It says, at Passover, many believed in Him because they saw the signs which He performed. But Jesus would not commit Himself to them because He knew the hearts of all men. They were doing it for the wrong reason. But miracles were attention-getters to validate the message. And especially in a new country like Samaria, they'd never heard about the Messiah, about Jesus. And so the accompaniment of signs and wonders which I don't believe, ceased with the apostolic age. I believe it's to be carried on all throughout church history, wherever the gospel is preached, that you will see evidence in miraculous signs and wonders. Now, believers are never to follow signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are to follow believers. And these signs shall follow them who believe. In my name they will cast out demons... And he lists a whole list of miraculous events that occur to those who share the gospel. Question. If that's the case, then why don't we see more of it today? Now, that's a hard question. It's kind of a trick question. Because on one hand, we do see very much of it, especially in areas where the trail is being blazed afresh with the gospel. There are countries where the gospel goes out I've been to India and I have seen some of the most incredible, miraculous things occur where people have never heard the gospel that grabs their attention. They then hear the message of a God who loves and forgives them and they often commit themselves to Christ. But it's with the message. But there's another reason for that. That's not an adequate answer. And I think the best answer I could give you is to give you somebody else's answer somebody from the 1700s, an evangelist by the name of John Wesley, who traveled 5,000 miles every year on the back of his horse. Never had a PA system, but he went from city to city, village to village, and shared the good news. This is what he said. The grand reason why miraculous gifts were soon withdrawn was not only that faith and holiness were well nigh lost, but that dry, formal, Orthodox men began to ridicule whatever gifts they had not themselves and to cry them all as evil madness or imposture. And he goes on to write, The causes of their decline was not as has been vulgarly supposed because there is no more need for them. The real cause was the love of many, almost all Christians so-called have waxed cold. This was the real cause why the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit were no longer to be found in the Christian church because Christians were turned heathen again. And they only had a dead form left. Now I think that really sums up the problem why many Christians don't see those things happen because their faith, their expectation, their love, their devotion for the Lord is at such a low ebb. There's no expectation. They're not like the woman who's looking for the hem of Jesus' garment to touch. No, they're like the people who are on the other side of the crowd just observing to see what happens. No expectation. And their faith, their love has grown cold. Now as we go on, it says in verse 8, after all of this happened, look at verse 7 again. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy... In that city. Well, you can understand why. You get delivered from demons, you get delivered from physical sickness, and forgiven of all your sins. You'd be crazy to not have great joy. One of the marks of any true revival is great joy. Where people start getting turned on to the simplicity of the gospel, where it becomes less complicated and they love the relationship they have with the Lord. It always follows that great joy comes to that group of people. As I read the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, who were both written by Luke, there seems to be an emphasis on joy in salvation. That Christians ought to be joyful, not in a plastic way, not to paste on a smile, but to be genuinely joyful, carefree. On one hand, being a sober soldier, armed and ready to do battle, but on the other hand, joyful, light-hearted, fun to be around, and joy in life. You know, Jesus was not a killjoy. You know, the very first miracle Jesus performed was the wedding feast at Canaan. It doesn't talk about any great results happening. It simply says all of them were happy. He brought joy to that event. His presence brought happiness. You know, it's sad when you see some Christians who think that the more serious you are, the more spiritual you are. There was a time in church history when they thought that was true. You went around in black, you combed your hair a certain way, you wore certain kinds of clothes, and you looked real mean. Question, you say some, oh, really good brother. Some real drab kind of melancholy response, and they thought, oh, that's spirituality. That's sickness. If you have a relationship with God, you ought to have, a first of all, a peace that passes all understanding. And Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy would be overflowing. Fullness of joy. There was great joy in that city. Now, we turn from this faithful preacher to a clever deceiver. In verse 9, the first word is, but... But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city. And he astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. You know, there's a principle here. Whenever God sows, His genuine people... Satan always comes to sow counterfeits. When there's a real, genuine, powerful working of the Spirit, there's always a counterfeit. Jesus gave an interesting parable, the parable of the tares and the wheat, in which he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went far away. And when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. Wherever you find true believers, you're going to find false ones. Whenever you find a church filled with Christians, you're going to find some tares Among the wheat. Remember John in his epistle said, they went out from us. And when they went out from us, they showed that they were never really of us. They were tares sown among the wheat. Remember the Old Testament, the children of Israel, as they left Egypt? What was the curse of the children of Israel as they left Egypt? Where did all the murmuring and all the complaining come from? A group called the mixed multitude. Half right on, serving the Lord, diligent, on target, and the other half, complaining, kind of wanted to go, but kind of wanted to stay in Egypt. Didn't really know where they were. Half and half, they were fence walkers. They were living in the gray scale instead of black or white. And all of the problems came from this mixed multitude. Tears sown among the wheat. The crowds that follow Jesus, same thing. Many believed and were tender-hearted and wanted to follow the Lord simply, sincerely, others were very fickle. And during time of persecution, especially during Jesus' passion, his crucifixion, many of them defected and followed him no more. It's always a tactic of the enemy that first he comes in like a lion to devour. If that doesn't work, he comes in like a serpent to deceive. First, he'll try to scare you. Persecution. Stop your sharing. If that doesn't work with you and you say, tough luck, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep sharing. Well, then he comes in to deceive you. And he often will do that by planting tares among the wheat to kind of lower your enthusiasm so that they'll rub off on you, so that they will drag you down. And so there's Philip. He's in Samaria sharing the gospel. All these people are going to believe. But there's this Simon the Sorcerer, some kind of occultic magician. And people followed him because he performed signs. They were amazed at his miracles. Let's go on. But, verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized, And Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, and he was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs that were done. There is a spiritual realm that perhaps some of us aren't aware of. There is a kingdom of darkness. There is an evil spiritual realm that really does exist. There really are demons. There really is a personal devil. Now, I found a poll that they polled people in Europe and they asked them if they believe in God. They said yes. 90% of the people they polled said yes. They said, do you believe in a personal devil? Most of them said no. Well, the same Bible that declares a personal God declares a personal devil. Spiritual hosts of demonic beings that you can't see, but if you're a Christian, you certainly know that they're there. Someone came up to Martin Luther one time and they said, you don't believe in a personal devil. How could you, I don't believe in a devil. Do you? Luther said, you try fighting him in a while. You try fighting him for a while and see if you don't believe in him. If you're a Christian, you know that warfare. Many unbelievers are unaware of it. But there is a spiritual realm. Sometimes it surfaces. And the demonic forces surface and you see them quite readily. I've experienced a little bit of the dark side. Unfortunately, before I was a Christian, I experimented in anything that would bring fulfillment. I dabbled in the occult for a while, in astral projection and some of witchcraft. And I know from experience that there is a dark side. And I started reasoning, if there's this much power on the dark side, think of how much power there must be on the right side. And that got me to thinking. In fact, it was one of the things that helped bring me to the Lord and understand His power, that greater is He that is in you, than he that is in the world. When I was sharing my faith at the Huntington Beach Pier, which was a sort of a hangout place where a lot of people would share the Gospel in Southern California, had a great night one night. People were coming to uh, the Lord. They were responding. And as the evening progressed, I met a woman and I started sharing with her and she said she was a witch. But she was a Christian witch. Have you ever heard of such a thing, a Christian witch? I have my Bible and I said, you know, I've never read of a Christian witch. Maybe you can enlighten me a little bit. I've never heard of that. I've had people cast spells on me. I've had demon worshippers here in Albuquerque threaten the life of me and my family, threatened to burn down the church until they found out it was a metal building and they thought, this is going to be a little bit tough. Wherever you go to share the gospel, there's not only counterfeits, but there are sometimes militant occultists who come against you. There was with Simon Magus. He seemed to believe. Now, some people think he was a Christian, some don't. I have my doubts. In fact, I would say he didn't. Because the foundation for his faith was not Jesus Christ or the Word of God. It was the miracles. He was amazed. He wanted this power to continue doing some of his things and take the people. It it goes on to say... In verse 14, When the apostles were, who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they came down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. Let's just read all this together and we'll comment on a few of these verses. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They had laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said, I love his response actually, Your money perish with you, because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now notice, all he was after was power. He wanted to give money to buy the power of imparting to people the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, when Peter said, your heart isn't right, repent, or you're going to be really in trouble. Instead of doing it and saying, oh Lord, I come before you now and I repent and I personally turn. He said, pray for me, would you? Peter, would you pray for me? Instead of personally doing it, he asked Peter to do it for him. It really wasn't a contrite kind of a conversion. He was after the wrong thing. Now, that brings up something very important for us. Not all that glitters is gold. Not all that seems miraculous is of God. If you are taken in because there is something wild and miraculous happening, well, you ought to investigate it. You shouldn't be close to it, first of all, because it could be from God. But you should examine it according to the Scripture. And keep in mind that even the devil is a miracle worker. In 2 Corinthians, Paul reminded the Corinthians by saying, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now, of course, Paul the Apostle also predicted that at the very end of the age, during the tribulation period, a person named the Antichrist would come. And the Antichrist would be able to perform miracles and deceive the world. It says in 2 Thessalonians, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And it says God sent them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. In the last days, especially in the tribulation period, not only will wickedness abound, but you will start seeing miraculous signs and wonders from the dark side and it will culminate with the coming of the Antichrist, by whose miracles the world will be swayed. He'll have an incredible charisma of speech, but an incredible power to work miracles. And because they did not love the truth, God will let them believe the lie during the Great Tribulation period. I want you to compare a couple verses. Look back at verse 10. I noticed this this morning. I wanted to bring it to your attention. It says, To whom they all gave heed, or they all paid attention, that is to Simon, from the least of them to the greatest. In other words, he was able to take in all of the levels of society, from the high people to the low folks, all of the strata. Saying, now this is their testimony of him, this man is the great power of God. Look at verse 12. When they believed Philip, As he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Simon was performing miracles and people said he is the power of God. Not of the one true God, he just has, he's the divine power. They had no personalized name for God. This was an impersonal power. That's all they were concerned about. That's all Simon was concerned about. Philip attached a name to what the people saw in the signs and wonders he was performing. The kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ. A lot of people talk about believing in a higher power as if that is sufficient. I was witnessing to a guy last week. We were playing golf on Monday. It's my day off. Don't worry. And he was riding in my golf cart, and we were in the middle of the golf course, so I thought, I'm going to share. I don't know, you know, there's some times that the doors just open, and sometimes the doors don't open, you just open them yourself. So I just turned to him and said, Do you know Jesus Christ? he said, Yes. And his answer was, I believe in a higher power. Which was a good start, actually. He was honest, and I really appreciate his honesty. He was a wonderful, wonderful man, and he was very, very honest. And it... It's not that he didn't want to believe in Jesus. He didn't know any better. He was taught through the system he was involved in that you just believe that you're a person on the earth, there's a higher power, really no personal accountability, and you're alright. There's no such thing as a higher power. When it comes to the Christian faith, there's a higher person who has power, and his name is Jesus. And that's the person that everyone will have to confront, either now or in eternity. But a lot of people get confused that it was just the power. And Philip preached the person behind the power, Jesus Christ himself. Now I want you to look back at verse 15. Or back to verse 14. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. See, this was, this was big news. Non-Jewish people, we're coming into the kingdom. You better send the big guns up there to follow them up. What's interesting is who the two people were. Peter and John. It's kind of humorous to me. Because John had a brother. His name was James. And James and John were part of a committee that Jesus sent into the same place, Samaria, a few years before. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they went to prepare for the coming of Jesus in Samaria. But because Jesus was heading to Jerusalem, those in Samaria didn't receive him. So James and John, who were called the sons of Zebedee, were renamed by Jesus the sons of thunder. Because they said, Jesus, would you like us to call fire down from heaven and post-toasty these Samaritans? Because they don't receive you? Now they were very zealous. For Jesus' cause. But they didn't have his heart. And Jesus rebuked them and said, You don't know what manner of spirit you are. The Son of Man did not come to destroy lies, but to save them. The same folks who wanted to burn the city down a few years before one of them, at least, comes to save souls. It's like God gave them a second chance. Isn't that wonderful? How many blunders have you made as a Christian? And isn't it wonderful when God gives you the opportunity to redeem the blunder you've made? To go back to the group or the person that you've said or done something with and, and just start all over again? Well, He gets His chance. Now, verse 15 said, When they had come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet He had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, this brings up an interesting doctrinal point. Philip came... Preached, and it says they believed and were baptized. Well, if they believed and were baptized, why this episode of not receiving the Holy Spirit? That puzzles a great number of people. Because, when a person is born again, he immediately receives the Holy Spirit inside. The Holy Spirit comes to live within you the minute you say, Jesus be my Savior. He seals you, He fills you with His presence, He starts sanctifying you to make you more like Jesus. And yet it says that they had not received the Holy Spirit. He hadn't come upon them. And that little word upon is the key to understanding this whole area. Many commentators, I've read several of them, several commentators today, and there's more taters that are more common than others, of course. But all of them disagree on this. All of them try to fit this within a framework, trying to understand it, and they botch the whole thing up. Notice again, verse 16, as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit was living within these believers, but they had not received the empowering spoken about by Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 when he said to the disciples, John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will receive a dynamic power to be my witnesses. They hadn't received that yet. And so the disciples come and they pray for them, they lay hands on them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. I bring that up, because it's been an issue of late around here. After last Thursday night at communion, after the communion before when we prayed for people, or a few weeks ago we prayed for people on a Sunday morning to receive the Holy Spirit, and people say, wait a minute, I thought when you're a Christian that the Spirit of God baptizes you in the body of Christ. That's correct. And I thought that when you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes in to live within you. That's correct. And I thought when you accept Jesus, you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's correct. But Jesus also spoke about an empowering for service. Apart from that, when he told the disciples, John baptized with water. You've been baptized once in repentance, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Remember Jesus said in Luke, if you being evil can give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? A lot of people have never, never heard of asking Jesus for the Holy Spirit because they're taught, once you accept Jesus, you've got all and everything that you'll ever need of any experience with the Holy Spirit after that point. Let me ask you this. How many of you have asked for the Holy Spirit from Jesus? Have you said, Lord Jesus, fill me with your Holy Spirit? Raise your hands. Great. Many Christians have not done that. You can have the Holy Spirit within and you can have the Holy Spirit up here on your noggin in a nice little safe compartment, theological compartment. You can quote chapter and verse, but it's another thing to have him flowing from your life like Jesus spoke about in John chapter 7. And to see your life become a vessel to radically transform people around you. Simply look at Peter and the early apostles before and after Pentecost. Remember, Peter was scared of a servant girl in the courtyard of Caiaphas. A couple weeks later, he's preaching to multitudes in Jerusalem because it says Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, proclaimed these messages. And we see this actually throughout the entire book of Acts. Now, in verse 22, and I'll close here, Peter says, repent therefore of your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart might be forgiven you. Simon is a good illustration of people who come very close to salvation but are not converted. They come so close that they come to church. They come so close that they go to the bookstore and buy a Bible. They come so close that they get yellow in the underline verses. They come close enough to memorize a few of them. They get close enough to sing some of the songs. But they have never released their lives to Jesus personally and are being changed by His power. There is a deception in religion because so many Christians... I spoke with another pastor of this city this week about that. He comes from a very kind of a strict church background. How so many people in his congregation equate church membership with becoming a Christian. Just like we said, all that glitters is not gold. All that is miraculous is not of God. All that claim to be Christians are not Christians. Because people, not everyone has been transformed by the power of the gospel in their own personal life. Oh, they come so close. They're curious and it makes them feel good. Remember the first time I went to church when I was starting to seek the Lord before I gave my life to Him, I thought, this is a good feeling. People are happy here. They sing here. They talk about positive things, uplifting things. Gets my mind off of my problems. And at that point, I had never yet released my own life to Jesus. You can come so close, but be so far away. What's the difference? It's called being born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, a very religious person, Nick, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. And this pastor, if you will, said, how can a man be born when he is old? Must he crawl back into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, You're not tracking with me, Nick. (laughs) Now that's a paraphrase for saying, That which is of the flesh is fleshly and of the Spirit and so forth. But he answered the question by saying, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would cling to him intensely, rely on him, adhere to him, that's what the word believe means, would not perish but have everlasting life. Nicodemus, you need a spiritual birth. Not just a religious awakening. Not just a good feeling from your Judaism. You need to be born again. Just like you were born once physically, you need to be born spiritually. How? By believing in Jesus Christ. I believe! Well, Simon is like what James spoke about. The devil believes and he trembles. You know, the devil is a, he's not an idiot. He's smarter than many, he's, well, he's smarter than most, than all atheists. He believes in God. He believes in Christ, he believes in the divinity of Christ, the virgin birth, the vicarious atonement of Christ, the second coming. He's very doctrinally astute. But he's eternally damned. Because those truths never permeated his life and he never submitted himself to God. And because his life was not in conformity with what he knows, he's apart from God. My prayer is always that the people the Lord allows me to come in contact with would make a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. That's the beginning. It's certainly not the end. It's just the beginning. Because once you do that, God will make you like a Philip or a Stephen. He wants to work through your life and scatter you throughout this world.